0: Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800 333 kia for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. In the early 1970s, it's estimated there were between ten and 20,000 people living in the wilderness in Northern California around Santa Cruz. There were drifters, hippies, families who'd fallen on hard times and recently released mental hospital patients all struggling to survive in ramshackle shelters or just sleeping among the trees. Though a good chunk of this population was actually building cabins, just not giving them official addresses so to say all of them were homeless was not entirely accurate. The climate in Santa Cruz was mild, and there were numerous beaches and redwood groves. It was a tourist town for a reason, and so it wasn't the worst place to be living in the woods. The mental patients were among this group because, in the early 70s, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California, and he was taking steps to overhaul the way the state handled mental health. He was promising both cheaper, more efficient state-run hospitals that would save taxpayers some money, as well as more private hospitals that were nicer but cost a great deal to any patients wanting to stay there. The main problem with that plan was that construction had not started on any of the new hospitals when the old ones began shutting down. Because of that, many of the patients were just released, somewhere around six to 8,000 people during the first half of the 70s. Psychiatrist Donald Lund, who was at the forefront of interviewing the criminally insane during the 1970s, said, quote, "...Reagan had the idea that people in mental hospitals were like people on welfare, living off the public trough, and that they should get a job instead of claiming to be mentally ill." Among those living in the forest was a man named John Lindley Frazier. He was not a mental patient, but those close to him were gravely concerned about his mental health. He and his wife had recently separated, so John had moved into a cabin on the land his mother owned for her rabbit farm. She had several other shelters built and rented out, and despite the lack of utilities, the cabins were sturdy enough. John's cabin was about six foot by six foot, or a little less than two meters squared, and his wife would visit him often. He would also stay with her when the weather turned, but the two were not on great terms. John's ex-wife and his mother were actually concerned about his mental health to the point they thought he might need to be committed. But there was no hospital that would take him without charging more than they could afford, so the two women tried to look after him the best they could. John made friends with the other drifters and got along with everyone, but those around him noticed his decline. He started to become obsessed with the Bible and began to tell his friends that he thought he was actually the John mentioned in the Bible, and that God was giving him a holy mission. He started preaching to anyone who would listen that the people who were polluting the earth needed to be punished. He thought that rich people who accumulated too many material goods needed to be stopped, and that he was the one who needed to stop them. He became especially obsessed with the family who lived next door to his cabin. While he lived in what was basically a shack, they lived in a luxurious house that overlooked the bay and had been designed by a renowned architect. They had a pool and more space than they could ever need. They lived less than half a mile from John's shack, just up the hill. The family who lived up on the hill was the Oda family, and the father of the family, Victor Oda, was indeed wealthy but also garnered a reputation for helping those in need. He was an eye surgeon, but he made a point to give free or discounted care to those who couldn't pay full price. He and his wife had four children and by all accounts were happy and blissfully unaware of the unhinged man living in the woods next to them who decided he had a vendetta against them. One day, while the family was out of the house, John broke in and stole their binoculars so he could spy on them better. In the second week of October of 1970, he cryptically told a friend, quote, big things will be happening next Monday. On Saturday the 17th, he stayed with his wife. The next day, he left his wallet and ID behind at her house, saying simply that he wouldn't be needing them anymore. The following day, on October 19th, John broke into the Oda family home when they were all out of the house. Virginia got home first. John threatened her with a gun and he tied her up, then lectured her about the evil of her ways. When Virginia failed to pick up the boys from school, Victor and his secretary, Dorothy Cadwallander, split up to get them. Victor picked up 12-year-old Derek and Dorothy picked up 11-year-old Taggart. Dorothy and Taggart arrived home before Victor, and John was able to subdue them and tie them up. Had the family all gotten home at once, they might have stood a fighting chance. When Victor and Derek arrived home, they were tied up as well. Victor didn't want to risk resisting and having John shoot his loved ones. John took Victor out alone to the family pool and began lecturing him about the environment. Victor tried to bargain with John, telling him he could give him anything he wanted, which just infuriated John more because he didn't want material possessions. During a struggle in which John pushed Victor into the pool, Victor tried to wrestle the gun away from him, but John was able to gain control and shot Victor, killing him and leaving his body in the pool. John then went back into the house and executed the rest of the family with a .38 caliber revolver. Then he dumped their bodies in the pool. In one of the family's cars, he placed a note that read, quote, Halloween 1970. Today, World War III will begin as brought to you by the people of the Free Universe. From this day forward, anyone and or company of persons who misuses the natural environment or destroys same will suffer the penalty of death by the people of the Free Universe. I and my comrades from this day forth will fight until death or freedom against anything or anyone who does not support natural life on this planet. Materialism must die, or mankind will. John signed the note with the names of four tarot cards, the Knight of Wands, Knight of Cups, Knight of Pentacles, and Knight of Swords. Signing it with multiple aliases was likely meant to put fear into the public that another murderous cult was on the loose, as the Manson family murders had recently happened. John then set the house on fire and stole another family car. After he made his escape, he left the car on a train track where it was run over. News of the slayings quickly spread and police asked the public to come forward with any information they had. Three different people who had followed John's concerning descent into madness went to the police right away. The note matched exactly the language he'd been using during his unhinged speeches. Police staked out his cabin and he was arrested at dawn on October 23rd, 1970 and went with police without a fight. The Oda's two teenage daughters, Tora and Lark, were out of the house when the killings happened and survived the slayings. Over 700 people came to the funeral. Against his will, John's legal team wanted to go for the insanity plea. Proceeding his trial, John told psychologist David Marlowe that he would rather get the death penalty than go to a fascist head factory. He showed up to his first day in court with half of his head and facial hair shaved so the jury would think he was faking insanity. Just as he wanted, John was declared sane and found guilty. He eventually killed himself in prison decades later in 2009. The legal team that had worked the trial all became very close afterward. Jim Jackson was the defense attorney and he had brought on his friend and colleague, psychiatrist Donald Lund, to consult on John's sanity. Years later, Lund would go on to co-author The Die Song with journalist Jefferson Morgan, which would chronicle much of the first-hand information on the life of Herbert Mullen. Harold Cartwright worked as Jackson's primary investigator and the three even made friends with District Attorney Peter Cheng, who'd worked against them for the prosecution. They saw no harm in becoming friendly after the case was over because there was likely not going to be a time when they would all ever be on a case of such magnitude ever again. Lund, specifically, was an academic and had only been brought on because the insanity defense was a possibility. The trial finished in 1971, and everyone in Santa Cruz was relieved to have their lives returned to normal. A madman killing people on a schizophrenic mission from God surely had to be a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. Unfortunately, though, they were about to find out just how wrong they were. This is Monsters. <laughs> The next summer, in 1972, Santa Cruz became quite literally the murder capital of the world. Severed arms and heads began washing up on the beach and appearing in the woods. People were gunned down with seemingly no pattern at all, and many people who resisted the urge to buy a gun after the Oda family massacre finally armed themselves. But to fully understand what went so horribly wrong, we first need to backtrack to the start of the decline of the man who would be responsible for much of the carnage that year. Herbert William Mullen had an unremarkable childhood. He was a talented football player, seemingly had plenty of friends, and had a steady relationship with his high school sweetheart, Loretta Ricketts. His senior year, he was voted most likely to succeed. That year, his best friend, Dean Richardson, died in a car crash, and John took it very hard, but to the outside world, it seemed he'd moved on. He got his degree despite the absence of the friend he'd been planning his future with. He earned his associate's degree in road engineering, but a closer look at those first few years of college does reveal some roadblocks. His friend Jim Gianera got him into smoking weed and he decided to experiment with acid. He got a bit too involved with both drugs and it started to affect his behavior, but nothing too out of the ordinary for a college kid. He and Loretta hit a rough patch and broke up for a time before getting back together and becoming engaged. It was in September of 1967 that things started to go downhill very quickly. He had enrolled in San Jose College to continue his studies but changed his major last minute to studying Eastern religions. He became a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War much to the dismay of his parents, Bill and Jean. Bill had served in the Marines in World War II and took great pride in his service record. Herbert broke up with Loretta in the spring of 1968 after disclosing to her that he'd had a bisexual experience with another man. Even if he hadn't been unfaithful, though, the pair likely would have split up. Herbert was beginning to become violent and erratic and would occasionally hit Loretta. When he was arrested years later, she still had his license plate memorized because she wanted to have it ready to give to the police if she ever needed to call them. Shortly after that, in April of 1968, Herbert fell asleep in the woods while he was high and was arrested for possession of marijuana and drug paraphernalia after a park ranger found him. He wasn't living the life his family had envisioned for him, but things were relatively stable for about a year. He was granted conscientious objector status, and his father came to terms with the fact that his son just had a love for peace that would not let him join the military, though that peace hadn't stopped him from hitting his fiancée, but okay. His father came to respect his son's philosophy as best he could. Herbert got a job working for Goodwill, which served as his required alternative method of service. Things were going differently, but he seemed to be on the mend. However, in February of 1969, he quit his job and said he was going to move to India to study yoga. He promptly dropped that dream, though, and moved into a trailer on his sister Pat's land. She was married to a man named Al Boca, and the two tried to help Herbert as best as they could. Up until that point, Herbert's family had been attributing his problems and oddities to his drug use. He was abusing acid and had tried heroin, and they thought his strange behavior was simply lining up with when he was on drugs. However, at a family dinner at the end of March, Herbert did something rather concerning. As Pat, Al, Jean, Bill, and Herbert all sat around the table, Herbert went into a trance. He started imitating Al's every move, taking a bite of food when he took a bite of food, and repeating everything Al said verbatim. He would not respond to anything his family said, and nothing could shake him out of the daze. Gene later said, quote, He was just sitting there with this blank stare on his face and almost baring his teeth, you know, like an animal does when an animal is vicious. The next day, Herbert cooperated when his family took him to Mendocino State Hospital. He stayed for four and a half weeks, but was granted occasional furloughs back to Pat and Al's house. While he was away, Pat found a shrine Herbert had made for his late friend Dean Richardson in the trailer he was living in. During his furloughs, Herbert's doctors instructed him to ask questions whenever he was unsure about something. The questions he asked did not often seem grounded in reality, though. Herbert once asked Pat if she was sexually attracted to him, and she told him she was not. He then asked her if Al wanted to sleep with him, and she said he didn't. He said he needed to confirm with Al, though, just to be sure, and he went and found Al and asked him. Though the questions were alarming, Herbert dropped the subject as soon as Pat and Al rejected him. Pat later said that she was not overly alarmed by the question and didn't think her brother was sexually attracted to her, but rather that he was not quite sure what was real. Don't you love an extra hundred dollars in your pocket? He was diagnosed with schizophrenia and given medication, which he only took occasionally after his diagnosis. He spent that summer working at a resort as a dishwasher, but in August he began to deteriorate again. Herbert built a lean-to in Henry Cowell State Park and was hanging out in it at odd hours. The park is a massive expanse of redwood trees, and though it was easy to explore off the trails, the rangers tried to keep a good eye on things due to the unique ecosystem. A forest ranger discovered Herbert's shelter and chastised him for cutting down trees and told him he had to leave. That prompted Herbert to reach for his hunting knife. The rangers subdued him and Herbert was arrested, but they released him without booking him. Herbert did go to rehab after that and moved in with a friend and coworker. He was back at Goodwill and seemed okay for a time, then rapidly declined. His anonymous friend became more and more concerned when Herbert said he was hearing voices. Herbert then started burning his penis with cigarettes and discovered he liked the feeling, a discovery that he elected to tell his friend about. Then he made aggressive sexual advances to his friend and his friend called his uncle who worked at a psychiatric hospital. Herbert was committed on Halloween. While in the hospital, at one point he shaved his head so he could better receive telepathic messages. He spent over a month there and when his parents came down to visit, he told them he was gay. They were not thrilled but told him he should come and stay with them when he was released. Herbert stayed at the hospital for less than a month. Because he had someone willing to take him in and because he wanted to leave, the hospital was not allowed to hold him. That did not mean anyone on staff thought he was ready to leave, though. On his prognosis for recovery, the doctor simply wrote the word, grave. In March of 1970, Herbert got on welfare because of his issues and was able to move out onto his own and lived in a hotel by the beach. He'd been going to outpatient care frequently enough that he was not kicked out of the program, but not often enough that any doctors were optimistic about his recovery. During his outpatient time, a longtime friend named Ed Lawrence introduced him to a group of hippie friends who lived on a commune. Though they tolerated his visits, the other members of the commune did not let him live there. He propositioned one woman who was Asian with having his biracial baby, and when she turned him down, he smashed the fireplace with an axe. One woman was quite fond of him, though. Her name was Pat Brown, and she also struggled with drug addiction. She was almost as impulsive as him, and the two made plans to move to Hawaii together. They moved spontaneously at the end of June. She abandoned him on the first day they arrived, and recognizing for once that he needed help, Herbert checked himself into the nearest mental hospital. While at the hospital, Herbert liked to wander away and apply for jobs in his hospital gown, and he preached to fellow patients about why they should take more acid. Bill and Jean sent Herbert money to get him home, but were apparently $10 short of what he needed for a plane ticket. He scared the ticketing agent at the airport into calling the police, and when the police arrived, they gave him the money to get him home. On the drive back home from the airport, Herbert's parents tried to have him committed because he was not making any sense in what he said, and he was scaring them, but police said they couldn't do anything if no crime had been committed. Just two days after he arrived back home, on June 30th, Herbert was arrested on suspicion of drug use. He'd been raving in the streets about the power of yoga and drugs. Police brought him to a psych ward where he yelled that weed and acid should be legalized. After just a few days, police were forced to release him because they'd tested the pills they found on him and it turned out they were simply his psych meds, which he hadn't been taking. Though police had to release him, the doctors who treated him did make note that they believed he was a clear danger to himself and others. Herbert once again went back to work at Goodwill. Though he was going through rapid phases of strange behavior, he didn't do anything that warranted hospitalization for the bulk of the next year. He also had more experiences with men during this time and realized he was bisexual. He attended outpatient programs regularly enough to stay enrolled. His next run-in with the law was the next spring on March 28, 1971. He was arrested for public intoxication and spent 10 days in jail. He stopped showing up to group therapy shortly after that. In May of 1971, he moved to San Francisco, where he was intermittently homeless. His most stable phase during that time was when he tried to take up boxing. Herbert was a decent fighter and even fought in a few tournaments, but he would do some concerning things. He would occasionally put on a fake Mexican accent, and when he would miss a boxing session, he would write excuse letters that were several pages long. He also started aggressively preaching to anyone who would listen about the Bible. Eventually, he grew bored and said he was quitting to become a priest. Of course, Herbert did not become a priest. Instead, he lived mostly on the streets and consumed concerning quantities of acid. For a time, he lived with a man named Alan Hansen, who had his own strange ideas and did not discourage Herbert's drug use. Alan told Herbert some of his ideas about reincarnation, and Herbert was enamored because he realized that if reincarnation was real, that his friend Dean Richardson would come back in another life. Over the following months, Herbert descended deeply into schizophrenia and started to put together a strange belief system. He realized his birthday, April 18th, was on the anniversary of the great earthquake in 1906 that had devastated San Francisco, as well as the day Albert Einstein had died. He decided that Einstein had died to protect all beings born on April 18th later in time and, more specifically, to save him from dying in the Vietnam War. He realized that earthquakes and other natural disasters must have some great significance and came up with the theory that God needed to be appeased with a constant stream of death. He lumped his biblical obsession in with this strange philosophy he was making up and came up with the idea that God sent natural disasters to Earth when not enough people were dying. There was a great deal about sacrifice in the Bible, and Herbert was trying to figure out how to fit that into his life. He decided that if humanity would opt to kill each other as sacrifices to God, they could prevent God from sending natural disasters that would kill even more people. Herbert moved back to Santa Cruz in September of 1972 with the idea that he had obtained secret knowledge that God needed to be appeased with blood sacrifices. He also returned with numerous poorly done tattoos all over his body. He had one that said Eagle Eyes Marijuana above his crotch, and above that, "legalize Acid. He had the word birth tattooed on each arm, along with two crosses, and his ankle had a Kriya Yoga tattoo. His family was quick to notice his mental deterioration. Among the strange ideas that had been brewing in his mind were several delusions about elaborate ways in which his family had been sabotaging him. Shortly after he returned home, he paid his aunt and uncle, Bernice and Enos, a visit. He accused them of sabotaging him and asked his uncle if his testicles were bigger than his. He then explained to them that reincarnation could work both forwards and backwards in time. He further elaborated that he wanted to be reborn as their son back in time during World War II and that he would pray they would become more powerful than in the past. They promptly called Gene and Bill, who tried to have Herbert committed. But by then, the hospitals were all being closed down and public funding had been gutted. Having him committed would have cost $100 a day, over $700 in today's money. Herbert stayed with his parents, becoming increasingly hostile and blaming them for mistakes made during his childhood. He soon started to hear the voice of his father in his head speaking to him and telling him to kill people. With this revelation that Herbert thought Bill could send telepathic messages, he became convinced that his father had telepathically told his friend Dean Richardson to commit suicide, and that's why he had died. He started to think that his family had been plotting against him, using their psychic powers to make him miserable throughout his life. In later interviews, Herbert would contradict himself on who exactly the voices in his head were meant to be, Most often, the voices telling him to kill were his father. Other times, Herbert claimed he heard the voice of God. Still, on a few occasions, he said he heard the voice of Reuben Greenspan, an unstable man who thought he could predict the future and would occasionally get into the media spotlight with his visions. Greenspan had predicted a catastrophic earthquake would happen on December 29th, just a few months away, and Herbert was worried. He decided to fixate on that disaster, convinced that if someone didn't go around killing people, California would be destroyed by a massive earthquake. Herbert would later explain that he believed that all of humanity could be compared to the story of Jonah and the whale in the Bible. Jonah was a prophet who God commanded to go preach in a certain city, but Jonah fled his responsibility and boarded a ship to escape. God sent terrible storms to sink the ship, so Jonah told the crew to throw him overboard so the rest of the boat could be saved. On October 13th of 1972, Herbert was driving on Highway 9 along a stretch of wilderness when he passed a homeless man walking along the road. When he saw the man, he heard the man telepathically speak to him and say, Hey man, pick me up and throw me over the boat. Kill me so the others will be saved. The man's name was Lawrence White, and he went by Whitey. He was a drifter who followed seasonal farm jobs. He'd been homeless on and off since he was a teenager, and at the age of 55, he was living in Henry Cowell State Park. He was making his way into town to panhandle early that day when he spotted Herbert's blue-and-white station wagon pull over on a gravel road. Herbert was bent over the hood, studying the inside. Whitey offered to help him out because he was handy with cars. When Whitey asked him what was wrong, Herbert said, quote, I don't really know, she just conked out on me. Whitey took a look under the hood and started searching for what could be wrong when Herbert struck him over the head with a baseball bat. Herbert beat Whitey to death quickly, without hesitation, then dragged his body into the brush. Then he pulled over in an empty parking lot not far from the murder scene and cleaned and sanded the bat until the bloodstains were gone. The next day, hiker John Shilton found Whitey's body just off the side of the road. Police tried to reach Whitey's friends and family, but no one had any updated addresses for his relatives, and his friends were primarily other drifters. After a newspaper announced that police had trouble finding next of kin, a preacher, a piano player, and a newspaper reporter attended his funeral. Weeks later, on October 24th, Herbert got his next message. He spotted a man on a random street corner and heard the man telepathically tell him he needed to find a new victim soon to prevent the December earthquake. Herbert obliged and went looking. That afternoon, he spotted a college student named Mary Gilfoyle holding out her thumb for a ride. She had a job interview in downtown Santa Cruz that day, and none of the buses going from her college would get her there in time for the interview. So even though students were being advised against hitchhiking, she decided to risk it. The advisory on hitchhiking was in place because the past spring, two hitchhikers named Marianne Pesh and Anita Luchessa had gone missing together. In August, police found Marianne's severed head in the woods on a mountain. Anita was presumed dead as well. The murders were enough to make people cautious, but not enough to stop hitchhiking altogether. In what District Attorney Peter Chang would later describe as a strange and unlikely cosmic coincidence, there was in fact another serial killer at large in Santa Cruz that same year who was responsible for killing Marianne and Anita. Famous serial killer Ed Kemper was halfway through his body count that October, but the newspapers had not picked up on it yet. If you want more information on Ed Kemper, you can watch the video I made about him at the link above. The link is also in the video description. Mary Gilfoyle was a pretty young woman with green eyes and light brown hair and was dressed up that day for a job interview. Had fate dealt her a different hand, she could have easily ended up in the clutches of Ed Kemper. But instead, she got into a car with Herbert Mullen. The odds were not good for hitchhikers that year. Herbert was short and around the age of many of the college students at 25, so even people who were being careful might not hesitate to hitch a ride with someone who seemed like he might be a fellow student. When she got into the car, Mary did not make small talk, but she didn't seem nervous around Herbert. But when he got off the highway early, she was on alert, and when he pulled over, she asked him what was going on. Then he promptly stabbed her in the chest, killing her quickly. Then he stabbed her twice more in the back to ensure she was dead. When he killed Mary, he had been reading The Agony and Ecstasy, a book about Michelangelo. It talked about how Michelangelo's obsession with dissecting cadavers had led him to become a better artist. Herbert drove to a secluded spot and dragged Mary's body to a copse of trees by a creek. Herbert sliced open her abdomen and started examining her internal organs. He took out her stomach and intestines and felt around inside her abdomen to touch her lungs and kidneys. Then, satisfied that he'd learned something about human anatomy, he left her body in the woods, tried to wipe some of the blood from his arms, and drove home. The newspapers took some notice of these first few crimes but did not start to connect the dots. Lawrence White's murder was determined to likely be a one-off personal killing, and Mary Gilfoyle's disappearance was presumed to be linked to the other missing girls. Herbert had accidentally crossed over into Ed Kemper's preferred demographic, and more warnings were issued about hitchhiking. There also just happened to be a serial rapist targeting female hitchhikers that summer as well, which added further confusion to the situation. But Herbert's crimes did not dominate the headlines until his next victim, which would send shockwaves throughout the community. November 2nd was All Souls Day. Celebrated in different ways across different sects of Christianity, the day was usually set aside to honor the dead. That morning, Bill allegedly had sent a telepathic message to Herbert saying he was mad that he'd listened to a voice that wasn't his telling him to kill. He was apparently upset that Herbert had listened to the random man on the street corner that told him to kill Mary. Herbert was upset with his father's voice and decided that morning that he wanted to put an end to the killing. He'd grown up very religious and decided to stop by a church on his way home from an out-of-town errand. That church was St. Mary's Catholic Church in Los Gatos. It was the afternoon and no services were happening, but there was a light lit over the confessional indicating that a priest was waiting for anyone who wanted to make a confession. Suddenly, the voices came back. When Herbert realized there was a priest alone in the church, the voice of his father said, quote, "'That's the person I want you to kill.'" Herbert had brought his hunting knife and meant to sneak up on the priest by shoving the door open and stabbing him, but the door was locked. Herbert thought about just leaving then, but the priest inside opened the door. Before he could ask Herbert what he wanted, Herbert stabbed him in the chest, but the priest put up a fight, shoving Herbert down and kicking him. As the priest tried to escape, Herbert stabbed him in the head, then twice in the back, Herbert started shoving the man's body back into the confessional, but he heard someone scream behind him. When Herbert went to pursue, he found the witness gone, so he got into his car and drove home. He hosed himself off and finally hosed out the bloodstains Mary had left in his car. Margaret Reed, who frequented the church, had been the one to witness the crime and had fled to the nearby rectory where a pastor called the police. The victim was Father Henry Tomei, a 64-year-old priest from France. Father Tomei had been an orphan when his father died in World War I, and he had gone on to play an active part in World War II. He served in the French underground during the war and spent his career as a priest helping underprivileged children, deeply affected by his own upbringing as an orphan. He'd led a selfless life, and the community was shaken by his murder. When the congregation started showing up for mass that night, police warned them away from the church after what had happened, but they still got together to pray. News of Father Tomei's death ran alongside trial updates from serial killer Juan Corona, who had been caught the previous year and had killed 25 people just hours away in Yuba City. The funeral was held on November 7th in the same church that Henry Tomei had served and was killed in. After that, Herbert was shaken. He decided he would join the armed forces so he could kill people in a more just and legal way. In November of 1972, he tried to join the Coast Guard but was rejected. Who decides to join the military because they want to legally kill people and decides on the Coast Guard? I know they see combat during wartime, but still... The next month, Herbert decided to buy a gun on impulse after reading an article about how men in Switzerland often owned guns. And he was one-third Scandinavian, so it made sense that he should have one. He lied to the salesman and got a gun with ease, saying he'd never struggled with mental illness. I also need to point out that Switzerland is not a Scandinavian country, and he was likely thinking of Sweden. At the end of the month, the 29th came and went, and no major earthquake came to shake California off into the ocean. Reuben Greenspan, the psychic Herbert was so fond of, held a press conference about why his prediction was wrong. He said he had goofed and messed up his notes because he did everything with pencil and paper. Why that made him wrong was anybody's guess, but his fly was undone the entire conference, and at the end he said he was going back to his cabin where he talks to his mules. When Herbert read the article the next day, he didn't understand why Greenspan didn't say the real reason the earthquake didn't happen was because someone was killing enough people to provide a blood sacrifice to God more sure of his mission than ever but still disturbed by his own murder of a priest in a church herbert tried to join the marines he'd learned his lesson from the coast guard and lied about his history of mental illness this time and he quickly passed the psych evaluation he was given his paperwork in january but refused to sign an acknowledgement of his criminal record and his application was rejected On January 19th, he moved out once again, and less than a week later, the voices told him he needed to keep killing. When Herbert woke up on the morning of January 25th, he heard a voice say, Today you must kill Jim Gianera." Herbert's old friend Jim had lived along a dirt road leading up to the famous tourist attraction, the Mystery Spot. Herbert showed up at Jim's old address just after 9am but discovered that he no longer lived there he lost touch with Jim sometime before moving to San Francisco. Instead, a woman named Kathy Francis was home alone with her sons that day, four-year-old Damon Francis and nine-year-old David Hughes. Kathy told Herbert that Jim had moved to a new house months ago. Herbert asked if she had the new address, and Kathy asked him what he wanted with Jim. Herbert explained that Jim was an old friend, and Kathy thought she recognized Herbert, so she gave him Jim's new address. Herbert stood on the Francis family porch for several minutes, waiting for a break in the rain and listening to the voices in his head. He heard Kathy tell him telepathically, We are prepared to die. My children and I don't mind being killed to prevent an earthquake. Then he departed, vowing to come back when he'd finished with Jim. The Gianera family home was on Western Drive, about seven miles from their old address. They were in a bit of a rough patch that day, Jim, along with Kathy's husband, Bob Francis, were small-time weed dealers together. Lately, Jim had been having trouble finding carpentry work and had been attempting to subsist entirely on weed money. He and his wife, Joan, had had their electricity shut off because they were having trouble making ends meet. When Herbert knocked, Jim greeted him with a surprised hello and remarked, It's been a while. The two had drifted apart since college, but Herbert had been stewing on the fact that Jim was the one who'd first had him dabble with marijuana all those years ago. Herbert greeted Jim with the vague accusation that he was, quote, "...really pissed about the time I've been wasting." Jim responded that he wasn't sure what Herbert was talking about, but the two were interrupted by the phone ringing. Jim went to answer it, and Herbert walked into the house. When Jim hung up, Herbert asked about an old acquaintance named Jeannie, and Jim remarked that he hadn't heard from her in a while. Then Jim asked his old friend what he wanted, and Herbert became unhinged. He screamed, You're claptrapping me, pulled out his gun, and shot Jim. Jim started to turn when he saw the gun, but Herbert got him in the arm. Jim opened the fridge door to block the next shot, but got hit in the elbow. He grabbed a milk bottle to hit Herbert with but lost his grip and Herbert shot him in the chest, piercing a lung. Jim started trying to get up the stairs to warn his wife but Herbert shot him in the head. Joan had been upstairs taking a bath but walked downstairs just in time to see Jim get shot in the head. Herbert shot Joan in the chest and she staggered over to her husband with just enough time to tell him she loved him before Herbert stabbed her in the back. He then shot her four times in the neck and head to make sure she was dead. He searched the rest of the house and found a baby's empty crib, but with no sign of anyone else, he fled the scene. The Gianera’s daughter, Monica, who was just a year and a half old, was thankfully staying with Joan's parents that day. Back at the Francis family home, Kathy and the boys were getting their day started. David was sick, so he wouldn't be going to school, and it was too rainy for the boys to play outside, so she'd let the boys hang out in their pajamas. Kathy had been struggling with depression lately, and the rainy weather and prospect of taking care of the sick boys had left her with a lack of motivation to change as well. So all three were preparing for a lazy day inside, hiding from the storm. The boys were playing marbles, and Kathy was on the couch when Herbert returned. This time, he had parked at the bottom of the road as his car had struggled on the muddy incline leading up to the house on his first visit. He wanted the element of surprise this time around. Herbert walked up during a brief break in the rain. He knew the family kept the door unlocked from his last visit, so he snuck up and rapidly shoved the door open. Kathy and the boys stood up at attention, and Herbert pulled out his gun. He said, quote, "'Could I have a couple of words with you?' Then he proceeded to shoot them, all in quick succession. He then went around and stabbed each of them in the back to make sure they were dead. On his way out, he grabbed all of the shell casings he could find. Later that day, Bob Francis called to have someone tell Kathy that he would be home late. One of their neighbors, Steve Houts, had the only working phone on Mystery Spa Road, so he would often begrudgingly act as a messaging service for his neighbors. Bob had been out of town on a weed deal that he and Jim had set up and it was taking longer than expected to get the money from the buyer. He wasn't sure when he would be home. Steve Houts went up to let Kathy know and had the misfortune of finding the corpses. At the Gianera's, Eleanor Foster, Joan's mother, had been the one to find the bodies the next day. She went to check on them when she couldn't get a hold of them to pick up their baby. She was so shocked at finding her daughter and son-in-law dead that she called her husband and Jim's parents before finally realizing she should call the police. Police were asking the media for any leads, making it clear they were only interested in solving the murders. They were open to the idea that the killings might have been drug-related, but stressed they only cared about finding who was responsible for the murders. News of the massacre went to print while Bob Francis was still out of town, and police were looking at him with some degree of suspicion. It was late Friday night when Bob came home. He hadn't seen anything about his family's murder in the news, but was not surprised when police arrested him as he assumed it was in response to the deal he'd just made. When Bob heard about the real reason for his arrest, he quickly broke down, and police believed his grief was genuine right away. He quickly told police the details of his and Jim's weed-dealing operation, emphasizing he had nothing to hide and just wanted to find out who killed his family. District Attorney Peter Chang hired Donald Lund to question Bob Francis so that he could speak freely under the cover of Dr. Patient Confidentiality in case Bob was holding back anything important for fear of retaliation from other dealers. Lund wrote down only a list of potential suspects, and after he presented the list, Chang found no new names. Chang later told Lund that he’d also had him question Bob partly to ensure he wouldn’t be able to represent him in court, should they find Bob guilty? They may have been friends, but Chang didn’t want to face him in court again. News of the mystery spot massacre ran alongside news that numerous severed limbs that had washed up on the beach were identified as belonging to Cynthia and Shawl. Police would not find her head until Ed Kemper's arrest as he'd buried it in his mother's yard, facing her window. It was a busy day for the Santa Cruz media. Police Captain Dick Overton urged the public not to buy guns or go looking for trouble. He didn't want people to panic. He told the Santa Cruz Sentinel, quote, This is not a case of somebody running amok and shooting people. This thing has a pattern to it. It's not a case of some crazy man running around shooting people. Meanwhile, the crazy man who was running around shooting people was on the hunt for his next victim. On February 7th, Herbert was getting firewood in the woods off of Highway 9. A park ranger pulled up and told him the area was being developed as a new state park and asked Herbert to put the wood back. To that, Herbert simply stared at the ranger, and the ranger said, quote, "Look, I'm sorry about this." Then Herbert yelled, quote, No, you have to follow the rules, and threw all of the logs as forcefully as he could back into the woods. The park ranger backed off and wrote down Herbert's license plate. Two days later, Herbert spotted a strange campsite in the woods. It was near where he'd been arrested for marijuana possession four years earlier. The shelter was made up of a World War II tent frame and covered with clear plastic. It was a sturdy shelter, about 10 feet by 12 feet, or 3 meters by 3.6 meters. The tent was off of a footpath about 20 minutes from the highway. It was near Inspiration Point, the scenic overlook area where Lawrence White had been killed. The shelter was vacant when Herbert found it, so he vowed to come back later and speak to the people who were so clearly not following the rules. The shelter had been built by two brothers named Brian Scott Card and Jeffrey Card. Brian wanted to go on a backpacking adventure in Northern California after he graduated high school. They'd left in August and ended up in Henry Cowell State Park in September, where they befriended a 15-year-old runaway from Pennsylvania named Mark Drebelbiss. Though he'd given the boys a fake last name, he was facing weed-related charges back home. Together, the three built their elaborate teepee and decided to live in it for a time. Jeff had moved out near the end of January. Two of Brian's friends came up to the camp to stay with them on February 9th. Both of those boys had recently graduated. One of them was named Robert Spector, and he was passing through on his way to hitchhike to the College of the Redwoods. Robert wanted to become a clinical psychologist who would bring people into nature as part of a treatment program. He brought his friend David Oliker along, who just wanted to have an adventure while he figured out what he wanted to do with his life. Herbert showed up in the early morning hours of February 10th when the boys were just waking up. He pretended to be a park ranger, telling them that they were on government property and needed to leave. Herbert was visibly disheveled and had no uniform on, so the boys weren't buying it. Mark said, quote, Hey man, who the fuck are you, Smokey the Bear? Herbert said that he was going to report the boys if they didn't leave, and Mark protested, saying they weren't hurting anyone, they were just camping. Herbert gestured to the trash strewn about the campsite and told them it wasn't right for them to be there making a mess. The boys argued with him, asking him to give them time to pack up their things and sneak away rather than get reported, but Herbert insisted that if he were to let them leave they would just make a mess somewhere else. Herbert walked away from the tent as the boys deliberated on whether they should abandon camp. After he left the tent, Herbert heard the boys speak to him, telepathically of course. The voices said, quote, It's alright. We know we have to die. We are prepared for the sacrifice. Suddenly Herbert came back, opened the tent, and without warning fired six shots. Mark was the only one visibly conscious or alive after that first round of fire. As Herbert shot everyone again in the head to verify they were dead, he shot Mark last, after he'd seen all his friends die. This was perhaps the one notable instance where it appeared Herbert might have taken some pleasure in his killing. Herbert stole money out of the boys' wallets to make it look like a robbery and took their gun for himself. Three days later, on February 13th, Herbert was back in the woods. He was gathering firewood that morning when he heard a voice say, "'Before you deliver the wood, I want you to kill me somebody. "'Don't deliver a stick of it until you kill somebody.' The voice asked him first to kill his uncle Enos, but when he refused, the voice said just to make sure he killed somebody before he delivered the wood. Herbert drove into town around 8 a.m., and when he spotted an old man on a driveway, the voices told him that anyone would do. Herbert fired at the old man, catching him in the chest." His name was Fred Perez, and he was a 71-year-old veteran of World War I. He'd been doing some early morning maintenance on a driveway at a rental property he owned. A neighbor across the street stepped out onto her porch when she heard the gunshot, unsure of what it was. She saw Herbert's car idling, and when she realized something was wrong, she memorized the license plate as he sped away. Fred was still alive when officers found him, but he died shortly after. Herbert's arrest was somewhat anticlimactic. An officer spotted Herbert's car shortly after the APB went out, and Herbert pulled over without incident. He did not struggle as he was arrested and didn't even seem to realize why he was being arrested at first. When Herbert got back to the station, he started ranting and raving and being generally disruptive, and police started linking together the murder scenes by the different guns Herbert had used. He'd taken some shells with him, but hadn't been terribly careful in covering up any evidence at most of the crime scenes, and he left fingerprints at all of them. Mary Guilfoyle's remains had been found a few days prior to Herbert's arrest by people going target shooting. They soon identified Mary by her dental records. The news that Mary's body was identified ran alongside the news that Fred Perez had been gunned down in his front yard, which ran alongside an article about the dangers of hitchhiking, and spotlighted Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Helen Lou, two missing co-eds who had been picked up and killed by Ed Kemper. On February 14th, news of the ongoing slayings speculated that Mary Gilfoyle had been killed by whoever was murdering college students, given that her remains had been dismembered. Updates on Herbert's case ran alongside an article about more mental hospitals closing. Governor Reagan had decided to accelerate the original timeline and close down all remaining hospitals at twice the speed of the original plan. The next day, on February 15th, Rosalind and Alice's headless corpses were found. Two days after that, Jeffrey Card found the bodies of his brother and friends in the woods. When the news broke that the bodies had been found, local papers started running stories about Santa Cruz being the murder capital of the world. The differences in MO between Ed Kemper and Herbert Mullen had police convinced that Herbert was not responsible for the murders that involved more mutilation. He was never considered a serious suspect in Kemper's killings because Kemper's methods were so specific. The news of Herbert's arrest did little to calm the public because the person they'd been afraid of since the spring, who was chopping the heads off of college girls, was still free. Peter Chang told the media that they'd already captured one homicidal maniac, but that there was almost certainly another one out there. As February wore on, police were unsure who had killed Mary Guilfoyle. An unrelated killing where a teenager had broken into the home of a 79-year-old local woman, raped her and stabbed her to death, further confused things. The possibility that there was more than one maniac still on the loose was scaring the public. One local told the Santa Cruz Sentinel, quote, "'It's time for me to leave. Things have gotten too weird.'" Donald Lund, Harold Cartwright, and Jim Jackson would spend the next several months trying to put together a picture of Herbert Mullen's life. With at least one other serial killer on the loose, they were worried about police attributing the wrong murders to Herbert or not finding all of the victims due to the confusion, so they wanted to get him to trust them enough to tell them everything. Harold Cartwright tried to track down some of Herbert's old acquaintances in San Francisco and provided the bulk of information available about his time as a drifter there. He talked to an old friend of Herbert's named Rick Barton who said, quote, "...he was incompetent to function in society. He should have been in a hospital. I told him so. I told him he should go to the mental health clinic down the street, but he never did. It's closed now. They're all fucking closed." Herbert was proving unpredictable and unhelpful in preliminary hearings. Jim Jackson had been appointed to represent Herbert, but Herbert insisted he wanted to try representing himself, and tried to tell the judge that during one hearing by passing him a note and refusing to speak. The judge told him he was not competent to represent himself. On April 5th, Herbert once again tried to represent himself, saying he'd decided the night before he no longer wanted Jackson to represent him. He told the judge, quote, I don't care to have a long hair represent me. Jackson's hair was somewhat bushy, but did not pass his shoulders. Progress was slow, but during their sessions, Lund was starting to make some headway with Herbert, or at least having better luck than Jackson was. Herbert was using his time behind the bars to write down his ideas and snippets about his life. After his arrest, Herbert was given the cell typically reserved for the most dangerous or unstable offender. It was separated from the other inmates for safety, had its own shower, and was farther away from everyone. It also had a camera and clear walls so police could keep an eye on offenders who were suicide risks. Herbert quite liked that because it gave him more quiet time. He was constantly writing down his theories about the world or studying law because he wasn't quite sure yet if he could trust a long hair to represent him. Herbert's peace was disrupted on April 24th when Ed Kemper turned himself in after killing his mother and his mother's friend and mutilating their bodies. Ed Kemper had a history of suicide attempts and was nearly seven feet tall, so it was determined that he was more of a risk to both himself and others than Herbert. Ed was given the priority cell, and Herbert was moved to a cell next to him, an arrangement that irritated both men greatly. The two killers, who'd been dumping bodies coincidentally within miles of each other, would spend the next several months getting to know each other. Lund became Ed Kemper's psychologist as well, and both men would complain about each other to him. They did not get along at all at first. Ed thought that Herbert had no class and couldn't hold a decent conversation. He even offered to try and inform on Herbert for Lund if Herbert let anything important about the murders slip. Herbert, on the other hand, was put off by what most people found distasteful about Ed, the necrophilia. Lund started planning his sessions for both men on the same day, usually meeting with Herbert first so that he had ample time if he needed it. On June 20th, after he'd been talking to both men for months, he had a day where both killers seemed intent on testing his patience. It was the last day for Herbert to give Lund all of his notes about his theories for the trial. He brought in an entire suitcase of notes and tried to explain some of the highlights to him. He said that his aunt Bernice was in on what he dubbed the Killjoy Sadism Plan to ruin his life. That encompassed loosely all of his ideas about his family sabotaging him. He explained how the plan was meant to reincarnate his parents and his aunt and uncle back in time where they would have more power for their next life in the past. Then they could also partner swap with each other. It was a confusing day, but Lund did his best to make sense of the theories. After an absolutely insane conversation with Herbert, Lund was ready to meet with Ed and have some semblance of a normal conversation. Ed might have talked about what he found erotic about severed heads, but at least the words he was saying made sense, disgusting as they were. But when Lund met with Ed, the killer seemed in the mood to play mind games, which was unusual for him, and took Lund somewhat off guard. He normally went out of his way to be polite, no matter the subject matter. Ed asked Lund if he'd ever thought about the fact that he was a foot taller than him and could overpower him easily. Lund tried to redirect the conversation and Ed started talking about how he thought he deserved the death penalty and that he would do anything to make sure he got it. He said if he didn't get sentenced to death, he would just have to kill someone while he was behind bars to make sure he was executed. He said, quote, I've fantasized about catching somebody off guard. It would be easy. Lund directed that to the subject of Ed's fantasies and if he'd been getting more sleep lately, and Ed said the new psych meds they had him on were making him lose sleep. They discussed a new course of treatment, and Lund saw Ed's doctor walking past their interview room. The room had a small window so they could see the hallway, but not the guard outside, to give a semblance of privacy. Lund pressed the red button on the table known as the panic button, which summoned the guard to open the cell so he could speak with the doctor. The button was meant to get the guard outside to open the door immediately in case anything went wrong, but on this day, nothing happened. Apparently, it had been a shift change and the guards left the room unattended. No one opened the door. Seven minutes passed and neither man said a word. Ed just stared at Lund and smiled. Eventually, the new guard opened the door and Lund was let out. He would later say that in all of his years interviewing serial killers, he'd only twice been afraid for his life. Once when he let one of the hillside stranglers demonstrate a chokehold on him, and once when he had to spend seven minutes wondering if Ed Kemper was going to kill him. In July, Jackson, Chang, and the judge who would preside over the trial, Charles Franich, barred the press from the jury selection process. With such a sensitive trial, they wanted to be able to freely ask jurors about their thoughts on drugs, homosexuality, and mental illness. One woman summoned for jury duty, Sharon Lee Jennings, was quickly excused when she told the judge she was Frank Perez's granddaughter. Peter Chang came down with appendicitis right before the trial was set to begin, and things were delayed in the hope that he might recover quickly. That gave the defense more time to go over the dozens of pages of notes Herbert gave them about his theories. Chang's recovery proved to be slow, though, and eventually, District Attorney Chris Cottle took over for him. Perhaps the most unhinged highlight from those notes that Lund would pick out to later share in his book, The Die Song, was a note Herbert made that said, quote, I believe my father has been unequally blamed for my failure, but surely if he had given me the six-year-old homosexual blowjob oral stimulation that I was entitled to like most other people get, I would have never taken LSD without his permission. Okay? During the preliminary hearing, prison guards went to get Herbert for an informal meeting, but he didn't want to be rushed, so he went limp and made the guards carry him to the courtroom. Because of his instability, Jackson and Lund had Herbert make a videotape where he explained his theories in detail. They needed that because they thought he might refuse to talk or be otherwise unpredictable if he actually took the stand to explain his theories. Things started off quite poorly when the trial began. The jury learned during the opening remarks that Herbert had actually killed 13 people, not the 10 that had been reported in the papers. Word that the first three murders were tied back to Herbert had not yet made it to the news. When the defense informed them of the murders of Mary Guilfoyle, Lawrence White, and Father Tomei, the jury was shocked. The prosecution had more than enough physical evidence to tie Herbert to all of the crime scenes, and their various testimonies were rather uneventful, as they had so much straightforward evidence. Most of the drama from the trial came from Herbert himself, and the defense trying to explain the intricacies of his insanity. Herbert would periodically interrupt the trial to yell or hand the judge cryptic notes about the way the world needed to keep spinning, or how hippies were playing with his mind. He'd interceded to tell the jury about how he was, quote, building his dynasty in other worlds. When the murders were detailed and it was noted how quickly his victims died, he smiled proudly. The videotape that London Jackson had made on a good day had the most coherent explanation of Herbert's theories. After some deliberation, the jury was allowed to see it. Herbert explained on the video that to prevent catastrophic disasters from happening, people needed to die. He thought that God was only appeased by bloodshed and sacrifice, and so in order to prevent catastrophic earthquakes that would destroy California and cause it to break off and fall into the ocean, he had to kill people. He called it singing the Die Song, when people either persuaded others to die or killed them outright so they might be spared from God's wrath he urged the viewers to go on and read records of natural disasters during history and notice that they stopped when war was happening he said that killing people quote is the way we persuade god that we want him to keep our universe together he also said that when a person took another's life it made him more powerful in the next life herbert's friends and family all took the stand at various points to explain his decline One Reverend George Flora testified about a time when Herbert showed up at a Bible study wearing a trench coat and frantically trying to explain that demons were making him do their bidding. Alan Hansen, the roommate who had gotten Herbert into the idea of reincarnation, chimed in. He testified about how Herbert had woken him up one night because he was having a conversation with God. When asked by the prosecution if he meant that Herbert was praying, Alan replied, quote, if Herbert did on the street what he was doing in my kitchen, people would avoid him. He was yelling. Once he screamed, God, we need more marijuana in the world. This went on for four hours. Herbert's sister, Pat Boca took the stand on August 7th. She tearfully told the jury about her brother's decline, saying he had a normal childhood and seemed happy and well-adjusted until he went off to college. Pat said Herbert was very sweet despite his troubles with mental health. Then she described a time he had visited her for a few days pretending to be a Mexican by wearing a silly hat and doing an accent. That anecdote and the story about Herbert asking her if she was sexually attracted to him would be presented sensationally in the media. Herbert's ideas were so unhinged and outlandish that it was almost impossible to write about the trial in any serious way when he was talking about time-traveling reincarnation and appeasing God with blood. But Pat's testimony did somewhat help the media to remember that what had happened was tragic not only for the victims, but for the family that had tried so hard to stop Herbert's decline. As friends, family members and acquaintances spoke of Herbert's chaotic mental illness. He avoided looking at any of them, and they avoided looking at him. But when Pat took the stand, she looked at her brother and even laughed a bit when she reminisced about the good times. She seemed particularly affected by the tragedy, having been one of the few people who'd known Herbert before his mental illness destroyed his life and the lives of over a dozen others. She'd tried so hard to support him. Dr. Charles Morris, who had interviewed Herbert for the prosecution, told the court that Herbert had confessed to killing a male hitchhiker in October. If there was any truth to that statement, the victim was never found. The claim was ruled not relevant at the time. Morris had many other thoughts about his chats with Herbert, though. The doctor said he believed Herbert might have been insane during the first three murders as he was still using acid and not making much of an effort to hide his crimes as with the mystery spot slayings. The prosecution also presented compelling evidence that Herbert may have had a personal motive for at least the killing of Jim Gianera. Herbert had conceded in interviews that he may have sought out Jim because of revenge initially, but the real reason he had to die was to prevent the great earthquake. Near the end of the trial, Herbert wanted to take the stand for himself. He went on to detail the conspiracy he thought his friends and family all held against him, saying that he'd become a scapegoat that they would all make miserable so that his next life and his next reincarnation would be even worse. He explained about the earthquakes again, the conspiracy against him, and how his father denied him orgasms. And he did not make a whole lot of sense. Near the end, when asked why he decided to kill Frank Perez, he said he didn't decide that. The voices told him so they were responsible. He told the judge, quote, A rock doesn't make a decision while it's falling. It just falls. The jury began deliberations on August 17th, and after two days, they reached a verdict. They found Herbert guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and eight counts of second-degree murder. They decided the killings of Jim and Kathy were premeditated. While the others were not, they were done last-minute to take out witnesses. Jim Jackson said after the trial that he thought there was a good chance Herbert had been found sane because if he were found insane, he might be released back into the streets soon due to the mental hospitals closing down. Lund believes that Ed Kemper's story played a part as well in the public perception. Ed had been locked up in a mental institution after he killed his first victims and was released just five years later only to go on a much more gruesome killing spree. Herbert was never found criminally liable for the murders of Mary Gilfoyle and Lawrence White, but in a separate trial, he was found guilty of the murder of Father Tomei. Herbert was finally done with trials and sentenced to life in prison on September 18th. Ken Springer, the foreman of the jury that had sentenced Herbert, was deeply affected by the whole ordeal. He wrote to Governor Reagan shortly after the trial concluded. He said in his letter that he holds the state just as responsible as Herbert for the deaths. He asked Reagan, quote, Where do you think these mental patients who were in these hospitals went after their release from institutions? Do you suppose they went to private, costly mental hospitals? Or do you suppose they went to the ghettos of our large cities and to the remote hills of Santa Cruz County? In his letter, Springer acknowledged that he was still very emotional after the trial, but that this was something that needed urgent attention. He said others should write too, saying, quote, Don't let one other person in our country lose his life because our governor needs a balanced budget. Please, please write. Reagan spoke with the media in response. He said outright that the psychiatrists were wrong in releasing Herbert, and that it was their error alone. He claimed that under his administration, there had not been any patients released for economic reasons. Alongside that interview, various papers ran articles about how 74 people had been killed by people released from mental hospitals in the previous two years. Springer wrote back to refute Reagan. He cited numerous letters he'd received from the family members of those in need of treatment who'd been kicked out to the streets, as well as a counselor who had worked with Herbert but had to stop seeing him after five sessions as that's all that was paid for. Unsurprisingly, Reagan did not respond. The media attention spotlighting the various killings did encourage others to write in. None of them got through to Ronald Reagan, but the rest of the local government overrode his policy. They used a veto override which stopped the closures, a process which has been used extremely sparingly in the entire history of California. In prison, after those first few months, Ed Kemper and Herbert Mullen managed to get over their differences. In later interviews, Ed would speak rather affectionately of Herbert, calling him, quote, Little Herbie. Ed would later describe Herbert's behavior in great detail as he seemed to find it fascinating. He talked about how Herbert would write elaborate speeches about why TV is bad and recite the speeches while other prisoners were watching their favorite shows. He would also sing terrible made-up songs. One day, while the two were being transported together, Herbert would not stop singing and the guard driving them threatened to mace both of them. After that, Ed decided he needed to get Herbert under control. Ed started throwing water on Herbert when he was being annoying and giving him peanuts when he was being quiet, or when he would sing at instructed times. He prided himself on conditioning Herbert's behavior like he was conducting a fun experiment. They later became friends and Ed got Herbert a job in the kitchen. The two killers were only in prison together for three years, but Ed would always talk about their friendship fondly. He said that when he would try to get Herbert to understand how his actions affected others, it seemed like the first time someone had actually sat Herbert down and tried to get him to understand his place in the world. Because Herbert was found legally sane, he was not really ever allowed to get proper mental health treatment after his arrest. At various parole hearings, he would ask for wizards to evaluate him or say that he wanted to find a wife to sire his children his parole was denied every time. Those first few years with Ed Kemper, where the necrophiliac would listen to Herbert talk about his feelings, but also splash him with water, were likely the closest thing Herbert ever got to therapy sessions after his arrest. Herbert Mullen died in prison on August 18th of 2022. He was 75 years old. People regularly comment that someone should not be called a monster if they suffered from mental illness. But my show isn't produced from the perspective of the monster. It's produced from the perspective of the victims. To the victims and their family members, Herbert Mullen is the monster who murdered them and destroyed their lives. I have spent most of my life diagnosed with mental illness, and if, because of that, I murdered you or a member of your family, I would justifiably be a monster to you. We can use someone's mental illness as a source of reason for their actions and even feel empathy for them, but to their victims, they will always be a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ plus community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show Somewhere Sinister on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again and be safe.